Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 30 of the podcast, the topic is the future of work. Our guest is Ian Barkin, chief strategy and marketing officer of Sykes and host of the One Take podcast. In this conversation, we talk about the future of work, robotic process automation or RPA, automated outsourcing, experience-focused call centers. We touch on COVID-19, smart tech, impact sourcing, the creative use of talent, scaling and selling a venture, building a personal brand, his One Take podcast, and the future of marketing. Quick word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts across industries and markets, including financial services, education, software, energy, healthcare, and life science. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Ian, how are you doing today? I am doing very well, Trond. How are you doing? Uh, I think it's a great day for another podcast. I have some questions for you, Ian. Of course. Hit me. (laughs) (laughs) Look, you and I know each other, but what what I didn't know is all of the interesting things that you actually have done. Because, you know, when when we we met at at MIT a a good while back, and, you know, you were, I think, at uh, Sutherland Global Services at the time, and you told me about Sutherland. And I remember that you said you were also a, you know, that's why you were there. I think a Sloan alum, so you went to MIT. But I have discovered that you also went to Middlebury College. You have a master's from LSE in in London. And, um, well, and then after that, which we kind of got a little out of touch, you started an RPA consulting uh, firm and Symphony Ventures. And then now you sold that to Sykes, which is your current employer, where you have launched a thriving podcast called One Take, which is fascinating. And you have these really, really good conversations. You're a massively good listener, which I will try to emanate uh, the rest of my life. So here's my question to you, Ian. Okay. You've done so many interesting things. You've had very big successes with selling your company. What, What in your background keeps driving you and what did you learn the most from hmm Ooh, how much time do we have uh let's see so i um i've always there's, loved- there's only one answer to the question just joking you can you oh, can goodness. you can okay. have two you can have two it's, it's a podcast where i'm graded um so uh <laughs> the so um i've always been passionate about innovation i i think yeah. that just, but and, you know, some of that manifests in the fact that I just like new technology and toys and things. So that's that's not particularly creative or different. But um, but I always I always liked innovation. Always liked how technology was applied to improve the way we did things. Um, always, I guess there was an element of a of an entrepreneur in me. I mean, I suppose there's it manifests in small ways as a kid where you're trying to start things or you're trying to sell candy door to door or what have you. And, uh, and just being bolder than, than perhaps is normal to, to walk up to strangers and try to, to convince them that what you're doing is, is worth them listening. And so so you, you did a bunch of those things in your, yeah, in, in when I yeah. was, uh, when I was younger and actually symphony ventures, which you mentioned, that was my, my third sort of official kind of grown up startup. Uh, and so much as I had, I had covered 
Um, I was in, I went into consulting initially early in my career because it was it promised to expose you to lots of different companies and challenges and countries, et cetera. Uh, then found myself in a research and advisory firm focused on what was at the time called machine to machine. And that, yeah. as we know now, is Internet of Things. It was just uh, the connectivity of assets and the you know, sensory technology in them that knew status and then some sort of um, bandwidth communication, short, medium or long with Zigbee or Wi-Fi or something else. So, I remember yeah. some of those people in the 90s. People sort of looked at them a little weird. They, well, um, I, well like... I'm used to that. Um, <laughs> so, and, I, and I loved that stuff. And I'll tell you what, I, I, learned, I learned innovation patience from that effort too, because back, this is 15 years ago, People right. were talking about how everything was going to be smart instantly. We're going to have smart homes and smart roads and smart um, buildings, and and that yeah. you would do these hockey stick. Th- that's kind of what I'm referring to, right? Because right. these guys were a little weird because they they made a mistake of of overpromising many yes. many times over. Absolutely, and overpromising um, because they were looking myopically at the capability. The technology capability was there. It was just all of the other realities of of an, of adoption just weren't. It, it, it takes a long time and investment and and change to adopt embedded sensory technology in everything you do. Now, and our homes are smarter than they've ever been, so we're we're you know progressively adopting more and more of it. Anyway, so I I'd, I'd started a, an advisory firm in the Internet of Things space. Loved that, but also understood that well things were overpromised. They took longer uh, to, to to be adopted and actually be deployed. Um, and then I went back into went back into big companies for a while. Went back into outsourcing primarily, which was tapping yeah. into. It's kind of a curious home. choice for you to do that because you know you're curious about things. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would then have gone into a Silicon Valley type outfit or at least an industrial outfit, but you chose yes. outsourcing, which I must admit, you know, at least when you joined it, wasn't a thriving innovation business to be. Yeah, perhaps Frank. Very fair, and and actually, you know what it was? There's, there's, I guess, two stories here. One is it was a mentor. There was a mentor of mine I'd known since I was 16, who was one of the the real um, innovators and grandfathers of of this global arbitrage outsourcing model. And I just happened just through dumb luck, which which is a which is a real strategy of mine is is dumb luck, and um, and I knew about the industry. Uh, and actually, I left consulting to go into outsourcing, and my manager at the time took me aside when he heard what I was moving on to, <laughs> said, Ian, what and doing? and literally told me I was making a huge mistake. I mean, no joke, and I, and I, it scared the heck out of me at the time. Um, but to this day, I've, I'm still in touch with that that individual, and I and I I told him several times how much I appreciated him. Oh, people going out on the limb like that and giving you personal advice, whether it is right. in the end correct for from their perspective or f- even from your perspective, but, absolutely. But regardless, and and in the grand scheme, it was correct in in so much as he said, "You're just going to be filling out RFPs. It's all about low cost, and you're going to find yourself doing the same thing over and over again." And and I I did do that to some degree, uh, but what he couldn't have known is just again, dumb luck comes back into the story. Uh, bumping into, uh, or my bumping into robots, this robotic process automation thing. Yeah. 
And it was tell me a that, tiny bit just about yeah. that, and then you know we, we can continue your story. But Rob, yep. uh, RPA is such an interesting concept, mm -hmm. e even just calling it that. So, yeah. so get, just for the benefit of people who don't know what you're actually talking about, absolutely. So, so, and and we've already laid enough of the foundation stones to 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 continue telling the story because I was in outsourcing. Outsourcing was leveraging global talent to achieve process ends. Right? Companies needed accounts paid. They needed um, accounts recorded. They needed HR transacted. And what they had done over time, thanks to folks like my mentor is they realized they could tap into talent elsewhere, outside of the borders of their country and company um, to find lower cost talent to do that work. And so, so we were tapping into you know, all the places that we're used to now, the Chinas, the Indias, the Brazils, the, the, the Latin America, broader yeah. Guatemala. Yeah. Um, and effectively, you were sending work there because you could define it. You knew exactly what you needed that team to do. You knew how to get them the ones and zeros they needed to, to transact the process. And you knew how to measure whether they did it accurately and at a speed that you had contracted them to, to execute against. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty robotic. And it just so happens. Right. It, it is robotic, yeah. but Ian, so it's not the traditional word for right. Right. It doesn't look like a robot, which right. I think is interesting because, exactly. you know, everyone has, or everyone, a lot of us have this mental image, which, you know, right or wrong is what we think a robot has a form factor. It's, it's a, a hardware with a form factor. Absolutely. And, and so, so, um, so we found software and, and I was lucky and I wasn't, you know, I, I was early on. Uh, there were others before me that I, on, on whose shoulders I stood. Uh, but they they saw the potential of using software to emulate the work that these that people were doing, and that's RPA in its purest form. It is just it's rule based transactional processing that emulates work that humans were doing in our back, middle, and front office operations. Um, but you you do it with software, and yeah. what that meant generally, if you if you if you taught the robot correctly it would do those transactions faster and more accurately. Hmm. And, and this had been around for a long time. But what, one of the things I find so fascinating is, is we're, a, we're an emotional creature, us humans, and we're also visual learners and thinkers. And so uh, someone came up with the idea of calling these things robots, not just macros, not just programs, but they called them robots. And, yeah, I'm glad he didn't call them macros. Right, <laughs> that, well, that would have been and, a problem. Well, we spent a lot of time with the space being somewhat pejoratively described as macros on steroids, which which is what it is to some degree. It isn't a negative. It's actually a useful descriptor. I, I agree. I agree. And, but the terms are so important in terms right. of what something becomes in the marketplace. Right. And in this case, a, a rose by any other name wouldn't be adopted as enthusiastically. And so RPA, by calling it automation of processes, but saying that it was a robotic automation of processes, created the chance to use clip art like nobody's business. And so all of a sudden, it became very visual. It became much more exciting. And, and it took off. And again, the dumb luck factor, I, I and some of my friends were in the right place at the right time, started a consultancy that helped enterprises figure this out and then apply it. So, RPA. 
Well, great. I mean, dumb luck. Uh, you're, you're being very gracious here. I think dumb luck is, is about being in the right place, right? And so you're not really lucky when you are in the right place at the right time. You are strategic but patient, which is what you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. No, so you can call that dumb luck any day of the week, but uh, it well, is innovation patience. And, and, and gutsy, right? I think entrepreneurs have an element of, of inability to judge risk. And so we, we took a leap and we started a thing and, and it, it turned out pretty well for us. So let's bring this onto a, a little bit of a larger canvas just for a second. So the future of work, which is something you have laid out in your podcast, it's something yeah. I realized some of my early work with my PhD could also now be, is now called the future of work. So these are things like uh, you know, to what degree can you digitalize and what, what processes can you not digitalize in right. terms of achieving innovation and that role of face-to-face, -face, uh, which we have all experienced a major transition on, mm -hmm. potentially, or at least a temporary one, and then right. we'll talk about that. Um, what is the future of work to you? What does it mean? And, and what is it that you're trying to achieve by probing into it with, you know, in your podcast? Yep. No, great question. Um, it, it runs the risk of just being a, a collection of technical subcomponents. And I think for a while there, it, it was that. we were pe People were calling future of work the automation, as we discussed. They were, they were um, referring, to, um, referring to some of the analytics and data science elements of it. They were referring to mobile and social networks. Um, the way I see it, and, and as you said in, in my, my podcast, I talk about the future of work life and culture really, is work is so much more than the tools we use. And it always will be. It's, it's, it's not the laptops or, or the punch cards or the, or the slates we used to use before it. Uh, it, is, it is what we're trying to produce and for whom we're producing it. Yeah, I, I love that about the sort of the longer formulation of your podcast. Yeah, I mean, you, you're you're tackling that head on. I guess we we share that we have that in common that we take technology and we kind of run with it as a lead concept, but it's not the at least in in my treatment of it, it's actually rarely the protagonist. Absolutely, and and. It has forever, really, and it probably uh, a longer discussion of human psychology, I suppose. But it, it's we are often steered by the tool provided to us. So there's that classic: if you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, sort of statement. And yeah. when you have digital technology, every transformation initiative is about implementing software, is about yeah. digitizing. And so what you don't end up with is a, is a better um, configuration. You just end up with a revised version of the prior thing using whatever technology someone had the ability to buy most recently in your company. Mm. But it is also a set of markets. Let, let's see if we can kind of unbundle some of those markets. And, and I, you know, you talked about one, our, our RPA has become a market. How do you define the markets surrounding? And I'm inserting an S here. There's a plurality of markets inside of future work. How would you line those up? And what, 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 what are, you know, what sort of size are we talking about? How important is this discussion in the right. overall economy? Well, so again, if you're steered by uh, the, the ultimate mission, 
which is for organizations, it's, it's survival and the ability to thrive. Thrival? That would match. Survival and thrival. I've made up. Right. A, um, right. I like it. And, and they do that by creating great experiences for customers in a way that compels the customers to first create a relationship with that enterprise and then to maintain that relationship. And you do that by having better products and services. And so the future of work um, should be steered by, by that, by experience. And you yeah. achieve experience and good product uh, design through design thinking, through a, having a mentality and a focus on what you're actually trying to achieve. Right? It's not we're trying to apply this technology because we have it now. We're trying to... It's an overused word, but we're trying to delight this this customer segment um, sure. because because our survival depends on it, yeah. and um, and so design thinking, and that's predicated on better analysis and study. So there's a lot about just the sort of the telematics of how humans interact with their world. Um, mm. There's a lot about data um, analytics and data science that's mm. imperative to inform any of these decisions. Uh, and then there's a there's a huge dependency here um, on all of it, which is around skills and education. Having so, I mean, what you have chap, uh, charted out though is a yeah. it's a myriad of markets because mm -hmm. it's you know it's essentially oh yeah the way you have laid it out now it encompasses almost the entire business software market yes. plus a whole host of kind of educational markets. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then it deeply ties into industrial processes as well, of course. Yes. But then with outsourcing, now you're into every business. Yes. Yeah. And, and so and so I mean, it becomes kind of a it's a strange thing to talk about the future of work because it becomes everything and nothing uh, at the end of the day. Fair enough. If you if you cast the definition too broadly, then what do you, what are you discussing? And, and but you're right. I mean, to some degree. We're, I, I think we just get fascinated by, by point elements or technologies or solutions when I suppose I enjoy having been able to open my aperture so wide that I am looking. Oh, I don't, I don't disagree with you. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's try that. I mean, you know, one of the things uh, I, I do with uh, the people I interview here is mm -hmm. I throw this very basic framework of disruptive forces on them, right? So technology is one. We've talked about RPA. What are some of the other technologies you are particularly excited about that, you know, despite just being technologies, what are they, you know, that they're doing something to, to right. the future of work right now? Well, so if, if you, this is sort of a, a tech complexity hierarchy because people ask me if RPA is AI and I'm not sure what AI is because it's so high up there. But, but so the other technologies around um, machine learning, around just higher order voice recognition that we find in all of the assistant devices that are in our homes and in our pockets and in our cars these days. I think those are, those are, are critically important here because we're able to interact and learn from the assets in our lives. And you must know something about this because I was going to ask you, you've actually created a LinkedIn and Linda course on RPA, AI and cognitive tech. Yes. Yes, good plug. That is actually what exactly what it is. RPA, AI, and cognitive tech for leaders. Ah. And um, my my working title for that initially was an MBA in RPA, uh, but but we made it longer and harder to say instead. And the real the purpose of that course 
was to try to enable leaders and decision makers in organizations at every level to to be able to sort of see through the BS and and state um, informed top down mandates and yeah. enable them because what I saw too often was a fascination in effectively magic, right? A fascination in the over promised. Um, the sort of aspiration of of what technology could do, and that didn't help anybody. I mean, it set people up for failure. It spent a lot of money unnecessarily. It sent people on these sort of um, these chaotic um, expeditions to try to to discover the solutions that just weren't going to be discovered because they were they were not discoverable. And so that that course is really about understanding the difference between. The macros on steroids end of the scale to the narrow AI to ultimately what people define as sort of a general AI, which we do not have yet, but worth understanding where where that is on the spectrum, just so you're not making decisions thinking magic is real, effectively. Well, so I have a question at this point. I mean, this could go in many directions, but there is also the counter argument that any reasonable progress in technology is created because we have sci-fi, we have our imagination, mm -hmm. right? So, so there's also the corollary, which is if you don't believe in magic, mm -hmm. then you can't see what is even just a tiny two steps in front of you. Yeah. And in fact, I have people coming up on the show that are so inspired by sci-fi that they're saying, you know, we're going to invest in anything that is sci-fi or, or yeah. ba basically it has to have an element of sci-fi in order to even be fascinating. So how do you combine that perspective with magic, obviously being magic and shouldn't be taken as reality. And, right. you know, these guys inventing things in the eighties and thinking they're going to be implemented in 85. And then yep. we're now seeing it 20, 30 years later. Yeah. No, I Well, first of all, so I, I love that, that, that comparison to sci-fi because I, I think, our sci-fi visionaries really did paint a future that that is possible in the realms of physics, and we're working our way to them. Whether whether it was you know Roddenberry or Sagan or um, or Scott Card or uh, Bradbury, I mean, they, I, I love the, the the pictures and the futures that they paint. Some of them were somewhat dystopic and dark, but others were amazing. Um, yeah. And I grew up watching the Next Generation. My mom and I used to watch uh, Jean-Luc Picard constantly. Um, and so I, I do think we're inspired by that in a lot of levels, by the way, right? Roddenberry was a genius. He had a, the economics of Star Trek is something worth studying in a college course. Well, well, exactly. I think that's one thing that I'm discovering, and I think a lot of people are, is that when you are in the creative arts at, at a level that reaches mainstream TV or Hollywood or you're a you know, successful author, you know, I'm studying polymaths at the moment yeah. for, for one of the book projects I'm doing. And, and, and it strikes me that you actually could consider some of these authors the most useful polymaths to study because their method is laid out straight there and the result is so much more visible and accessible. All right. the other polymaths, they have, you know, they have Nobel Prizes and stuff that you can't really relate to. Right. But these author polymaths, not only are they smart combining arts and networks mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, but they have the science usually to back it up. Yes. And, oh, and that's fascinating. And, and they have the stage on which to present it. 
in an interesting way so that you you can visualize just like and again back to robots being that visual imagery that that kicked off a trend um, if, if you have a sitcom with actors and and uh, and sound stages you can get people really excited about mobile phones holodecks uh, voice recognition of computers in every hallway I mean that's that's what we're living but now. but Ian there's another aspect we we need to discuss because Tech is one thing, we agree. Mm-hmm. Culture is a whole other. But business models, which is sort of layer two or three in, in, in my model, it's in there, so among the four, that's something that you have an acute awareness of. And you obviously have been able to sell a company, so you know something about it. And you've been in, not just in innovation, but you've been, you know, to some extent in, in sales. Uh, you're at least yeah. selling the vision enough that it uh, sells the company, for instance. Sure. What is it? And, and by the way, I don't know if that was MIT or you had it latent in you, like you said, from, from childhood of always sort of making things and selling things. The business models are getting interesting these days. You can't just produce a technology and expect people to, to like it, right? The, the whole design thinking idea mm-hmm. and, and tailoring things to very specific markets, but then also selling it, positioning it. Yes. How, what, is, what is that thing? business models why 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 are they starting to change how do we even grasp them i mean i did teach at a business school but i'm sort of wondering is it really something you learn in business school because you either see these things mm-hmm. or you don't no that's it, uh if i knew the answer to this i would i would be far better off um it, it, it's a great point i mean ultimately I mean, the business models that succeed to, well, I don't know, some of it's just, it doesn't jibe with reality where business models are really just about number of people who have downloaded your software and then there's some artificial equation thereafter that makes you a billion. Well, that's a good point. I mean, I don't think all entrepreneurs actually understand why they are successful. Of course, right. after the fact, they can talk about it, but they don't really know what happened. Yeah, and because they, they, they benefited from a, a very artificial mechanism that's extremely successful at achieving scale um, sort of it, perhaps unjustifiably fast and, and, and at a level that's unjustifiable, but then you apply evaluation to it. Um, but other business models that are really more around data and understanding user proclivity uh, and, then, and then enabling enterprises to act on that to, to create further services. I mean, that's, it, seems like, it seems like that's the winner now. And, and honestly, the last 10 years of, of my time in enterprise business, we all found ourselves. What was interesting is there was this, there was this osmosis of business model. There was sort of a permeable membrane at that point. It wasn't, we're a car manufacturer, so we compete against other car manufacturers, or we're an outsourcer, so we just have to look at our peers and see what they're doing. It's everyone was trying to be Amazon. Right? Everyone was trying to be um, Airbnb, I mean, all the conferences we went to where the biggest country, co- biggest companies in the world didn't own any assets anymore. They just had a platform. Um, so I, I, I how, how do you think that thing is going to end? Because yeah. the platform game now has become mm-hmm. the only game in town. Everybody okay. does want to be Amazon. And, you know, right. forget GE and others who also, of course, had a platform, but they also had products and, and, yeah. and they had industry relationships. They had other things mm-hmm. and they owned infrastructure and, right. and, and machinery and things. H- how is this going to end? Because... I kind of have a hunch that both when it comes to AI broadly understood as it is right now over the last decade with the deep learning kind of movement, but also this whole very dubious notion that platforms is the only business. business. How is this going to end? 
Well, it, it certainly commoditizes what you would traditionally have thought of as the valuable component of the equation. Yeah. In, in, in so much as it's, it's no longer that you've got the, well, you've got the vehicle and you drive it, or you've got the, the hotel room and you maintain it. Those that's, that's a, an afterthought too. And, and so who knows, maybe there'll be a, as often there is a pendulum swing back to appreciating the the actual asset rather than the platform. Well, one thing, one thing, and I don't know what your opinion. I'm 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 European in that respect. I mean, I grew up with the government owning a lot of the infrastructure. And if you think about it, ostensibly, yeah. what that was is the government owned the platforms. Right. I mean, it's not different from that. There's no difference. Right. So, so I mean, all we have now is with with outsourcing to use that word of yeah. of all these platforms to private providers. We have given away the gold, which most sensible people knew was gold. Right. And we have given it away to the marketplace thinking they can run it more efficiently. Mm -hmm. The problem is, of course, you create all these juggernauts every decade yes. that then run us all into trouble because they own such a fundamental part of the fabric of society. Yes. I mean, right now we have Amazon. Last decade we had Google. Before that we had Microsoft. Decade before that we had IBM. Right. And then before that there were some industrial companies. Sure. Why do we do this to ourselves? Well, I, I think there's a, I guess there's an economy of scale to it that enables it. And then, then, then it's sort of a flywheel where it just gets easier and easier to go as you've gotten big. There is a fascination, and again, back to the there are the mechanisms and the, the financing that's available now to to get scale extremely rapidly. But obviously, then you need to lay it on the or put it in context of the of today of the current era, in which nationalism seems to be um, the, the rearing its its head, and and borders are shutting down, supply chains are being limited, and so we may have to find ways to to produce things again for ourselves, at least for the short. Well, exactly, because platforms become less valuable if they can't cross borders. That's right. for sure. So, so tell me. I mean, there's 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 more aspects of this kind of disruption game. There's uh, social uh, aspects, and you you call it culture. There's there's kind of social and cultural aspects intermingled here. What, what what are you thinking about how they are acting on this? If we take even just the current situation, where we are all in a very peculiar social state, each of us right now. Mm -hmm. How does that to you? As you are reflecting on this moment, how does that impact the future of work? Well, I mean, call it COVID, call it whatever you, you yeah. want to call it right now. That's that's kind of impacting us. Well, I'll, I'll say from 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 my work perspective, from the Sykes perspective, um, Sykes and any any outsourcing company was was always built on talent, right? Whether I mean, whatever technology you had, the 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 product you were selling. Um, at the end of the day was, was good people, uh, that you sourced well, that you trained well, that you compelled, um, to, to be able to retain. And they're the ones who are picking up phones or answering chats and, and maintaining a level of service for your enterprise client. And so you're yeah. creating that experience we were going for. Um, but the, the, the mechanics of the logistics of that, I suppose, were always very physically bounded. You yeah. had a, you had a building and you could only hire people within a reasonable distance of that building because yeah. they had to get to work and then get home and then back to work um, affordably and in a, at a time that allowed them to get some sleep and to cook and eat and see their family. So 
now that those the, the dependency on the physicality of of office locations, delivery centers is is less uh, relevant, and it's it's not gone because we still do have some centers, and we have everyone socially distanced appropriately, and we've got the appropriate um, uh, health measures. But we can now tap into talent all over the planet, which is exciting. so. Because you actually made that transition, you potentially, I mean, depending how the markets go, but you could come out of this uh, w- with some opportunities. I mean, obviously, yeah. we are all scathed by this, but there are some opportunities here that are really exciting for the outsourcing business. Yes. And, and, you know, to, and it's been fascinating to watch just because I mean, we just did, you know, not to, not to put my, my, my corporate hat on, but we just had the best Q2 we've ever had. And so we, we actually financially were doing extremely well um, because we're because we had the capability to move people home. We moved thirty five thousand people to work from home in a matter of weeks, and we had had experience already with it because there was some component to the business that was was at home from the start. We hired agents who who were working from home as as their as their office location. Yeah. So, so we had, I suppose, back to platforms. We had the platform. We we had the mechanisms to to hire them, to distribute the work, to to support yeah. them, to manage them. Um, but it is amazing now to watch that the the world's effectively our our oyster from a talent acquisition perspective. We can, as long as you've got, and, as long as you've got internet. Which, and okay, so yeah. as long as you got internet, I mean, there surely there must be some limitations. But on the other hand, given that you're operating call centers, I, I mean, I see your point. I mean, cer- uh, certainly, I mean, training, there are some cultural aspects. That, I mean, there are many, many aspects where humans like to be in groups. So, so I mean, that's essentially my question to you. Yeah. We're not going to turn into a virtual species overnight. A- again, back to this Internet of Things argument in the right. 80s. Just because we have the technologies doesn't mean that our psychology changes. No, and, and honestly, if if you were to if you were to lean on um, evolution, evolution is the thing that would change our behavior. You just don't have it anymore. It's not like some of us are getting eaten by saber toothed tigers because we're night owls and we're out of the cave at night. And the, and the, the but morning. also, I mean, evolution. If you're going to talk about it in a physiological sense, I mean, right. that evolved over years and yeah. decades and, yeah. and, and, and much more, right? I mean, yeah. you can't talk about any meaningful mm-hmm. biological evolution, can you? I mean, th- this would be an interesting argument to make, but mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to test, though. Right. Like, would Have we evolved because we've used cell phones for 20 years? Uh, it's an interesting argument. I'm actually planning to try to empirically test it. I've, I have access to some data that I'm going to uh, dig out from some longitudinal work on, on that. We'll, we'll find out, but it hasn't really been tested. I mean, my 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 data points, and I've got two of them, are my eight and ten year old daughters who who were spending a lot of time on Facebook Messenger for kids uh, to maintain relationships that they they would have otherwise physically uh, conducted together in school, and then that's just it's, it's it's sad because you wish your kids could be with their friends on the playgrounds and in school and classrooms, uh, but they seem to be doing an okay job. Obviously, there's this is this speaks to sort of the development of of girls versus boys too. I, I imagine this is a very different experience if you've got sons versus daughters. Um, but I think it, the evolution's begun to some degree. They're spending a lot of time communicating very comfortably. When when I was a kid, I was nervous to speak on the phone with a friend, and and they're yeah. just they're natives. Yeah. 
Speak to me a little bit about building your own personal branding because you seem to be doing very well at it. it what are your thoughts? Um, so there's a few different pieces to the equation. One, if you, I, I think now, if you're an entrepreneur and starting anything, or even if you're just a salesperson in an established organization, um, there's a huge value in having a personal brand. And in fact, from, from a, a media perspective, people resonate more with individuals than they do with enterprises. So yeah. um, people aren't necessarily going to be connecting with and following a, a, a corporation's LinkedIn or Facebook page uh, as much as they would another human because we just because we're humans because back to the, the social element of us. Um, and if you're an entrepreneur and you're not using this mechanism to build your brand, then you're, you are missing the biggest trick. Uh, the reason yeah. we were able to, to create a brand, uh, for the, the small startup I created was, was somewhat because of the fact that we were doing great work. We had really smart people and we, we had happy clients, but that doesn't resonate. I mean, there's no string theory to that, that lets other people know it. Um, you yep. need to just get out there and scream it from the hilltops, uh, right. but you gotta, you gotta do it carefully so that it's not self-promoting and it's not advertising, but it's hopefully. Well, well, see, that's why I wanted to ask something. So Gary V to take one, and there are many other, you know, there's uh, Seth, um, uh, what's his last name? Godin woman. Yes. Godin. Yeah. So those are two examples of extremely prolific content producers of the last decade. Yes. And Gary Vee, I think now is famous for saying everybody should produce 60 pieces of content per day. So first off, that clearly has to be derivative content. So we're not talking about completely new pieces. But on the other hand, there's something profound there about how social media works. But, But what are you warning about when you're saying just make sure you know, that you're not diluting or that, that you're not just doing it for, for the sake of, of just producing. The, the, the second you say, what can I do to get you in this car today? People tune you out. Yeah. It's just because we've, we've, we have this instinctual radar that says I'm being sold to. And, and by virtue of that, I'm probably being misled um, down a path that they want me to, to go down. And it doesn't, so this it, is the proverbial car salesman's problem. Yes, exactly. And, and so it's, it's not well received, especially now when we're, we're bombarded by and have the, the freedom of choice of content all over the place on, our, on every device, every channel. Um, and it's not, it's not trustworthy. You don't build a relationship virtually, obviously, but relationship with this individual. And you don't yeah. get anything out of it. And right. so I think there's a lot to be said. And I've, I've loved what I've been able to do just because it's a, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a personal journey of exploration that I've selfishly done like on stage, right? I've just, I have these wonderful, like, like the discussion that you and I had on, on my, my podcast, um, yeah. very recently. I mean, I get more out of that than if, if, if there was, if there was no one in the audience, I would still love it. And I would, I would gain something from it. And that there are people in the audience is just that much more of a thrill that other people are, are getting to, to benefit from that discussion as well. Yeah, I, um, I, that's, that, I think that's profound. I mean, you at least have to see value in what you yourself are doing. But, but you know, yeah. that doesn't discount that a lot of people start 
embodying social and they see social as a mean in and of itself. Yeah. Right. Well, and the, the Gary V, by the way, I, I love the study of Gary V because he, I mean, he's fascinating. He, he, he sets a bar that if you achieve one tenth of, then you're heading in the right direction. I mean, there's, there's a lot you can learn from him. Um, but he, he used it as a means to an end. And his history was he used the internet and social to, to build a business. And then he realized there's more money in helping other people use the internet and social than the business he was building. And so he became somewhat of a self-help coach in that um, regard. And, uh, and he also has a, a business that helps other companies. You know, that. it's funny. I actually knew of Gary Vee before anybody else, or, you know, I, I was listening to his wine uh, library t- right. TV, right. you know, cause I was, I was into wine. It was, you know, he had a, a very different style. Yeah. Well, Even just in that very little domain. I mean, and that was his background. I believe his father was a liquor store owner and he, right. you know, that's how he, he rose to, to fame. But right. the point is to listen to his early shows discussing wine, mm-hmm. it's transformative. Yeah. And, you know, I was writing at the time a column on the sociology of wine and he was almost a case study because here... First of all, wine has always been very diverse, and I don't know why we digress into wine from Gary Vee. But anyway, the point is, he just completely took it down to his own level. He was just, you know, here's, you know, I don't like this, and or you know, he was very, very personal style, yeah. and that's it. And so he, he, you know, so I guess back to sort of the root of the question, which is, if you're comfortable sharing, just comfortable, comfortable being yourself. Um, you're comfortable. I mean, this, there's very little social about this. You're staring at a small glass eye. So the people think you're looking at them. And so there's, 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 so it's an artificially social, um, environment that you're in when you're creating this content, but if you're comfortable doing it and, you know, to Gary V's credit, I mean, he's, he's always telling people don't care what other people think about what you're doing. Just do it if you love it. Um, so, and I don't find the world to be that generally judgmental or cruel. It's not like anyone was judging me negatively while I was building the brand for symphony. I, I don't think, um, uh, yeah. or at least they were nice enough not to email me that sentiment when I was doing it. But, um, but if you are comfortable doing all of that, get out there and do it because you're creating a legacy of content. You're getting better and better at your craft. Every single day you go online, you're getting better at articulating what you're trying to say. Um, well, well, and that brings us to the podcasting medium specifically, right? Because, I, and I'm a very recent convert. I mean, I always liked the interview format. Turns out I've been doing interviews all my life. Right. I just regret I never recorded them and publicized them. Exactly. I mean, I, I, not only would I have been richer, I would have brought so much data out there to the to the world. Absolutely. And it's, and so it's what are you thinking about that? That you're actually generating somewhat interesting lasting content absolutely conversation yeah, I mean, real conversations it um so a few th- it, so yes yes and yes uh, there I, I realized as i was having discussions with my my colleagues and friends and and industry partners in the rpa space every time we had a phone call we were having discussions that were you know that were uh, to me at least they were interesting and and we were early enough in the in the space that what we were talking about was probably helpful and enlightening to people who were, who were just entering the space. If we had recorded any of those, they would have been valuable. And I sort of realized that we should just get on with it and record it. Now, some people really clam up when you tell them you're recording now, it becomes much more of a formal thing. And I think over Hmm. time you get used to a much more informal, um, natural banter, um, where you're still covering the content. 
So I, I think that's, that's important. And as you said, just to have a library. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, three weeks ago, someone liked and shared something uh, very excited about an upcoming webinar I was part of. And it turns out that the webinar happened two years ago. So whatever the whatever LinkedIn algorithms were were looking or or whatever they were doing that day, they surfaced they surfaced content that was over two years old and and still was paying dividends. And so, yeah, and what do you think about the future of meetings? Because it's a little bit related to this. Yeah. Uh, there's one problem with recording everything, right? Is that you get an enormous amount of content. So whether you're in the meeting or not, I mean, you're going to have to spend that time, presumably, unless the algorithms can record everything. I have this one little vision, which is you shouldn't really have a meeting unless you can have a five-minute podcast interview you, a podcaster interview you after the meeting and you actually have something to say. I, 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 I mean, that. you know, well, because, but on the other hand, there is something going on in this back and forth where people are weighing arguments. And, you know, I actually don't like meetings very much as a format. So if we could innovate on meetings, my life would improve. Well, and you and I what do you think? This in our in our discussion on my podcast, which is the the virtualizing of meetings with the tools we have available today is simply paving cow paths. It is digitizing an, an, an archaic format of interaction and decision-making and design. If you could, if you could scrap it all, if you could rip it to yep. pieces. And, and, and in fact, earlier this week, I, I have a, a standing staff meeting with my, my leadership. And I brought that up at the beginning of the meeting and said, I'd like to challenge us to not do these meetings in the future. Now, what would that look like? And we didn't come up with any brilliant ideas yet, but I'll, I'll keep you posted because, because you're right. Um, it's, there should be different and better ways given the tools we have. And I guess the only other point is if anyone ever, everyone always wants people to record meetings, there's something very different about live than recorded. Uh, and, and sometimes for content like podcasts or movies where we're, you know, we're, we're comfortable with the fact that it's, it's been recorded, but recorded meetings are just death to listen to. They are boring, aren't they? So I I do not go back and listen to very many recorded meetings unless it was so incredibly important and there was such a good reason I wasn't able to make it that I go back. Yeah, I mean, I think there must be an RPA algorithm for for uh, filing results from meetings or or even process arguments. Uh, so so that's yeah. That could actually be a, a very specific uh, machine learning innovation to to actually start figuring out how to decode yeah. meetings. Yeah. And then ultimately, if we can just get back to back to Star Trek, um, if we can just get to a Star Trek reality where uh, where you can just like plug in, or maybe this is Matrix something. Thinking of like data, you could just read all of that content so fast. If we could just speed through everything faster, that would be great. So. Well, I think that's what Elon Musk is working on with Neuralink. You know, the idea is speeding up certain things. Uh, yeah. Although you you sort of wonder if you're hitting up a, a, against the natural biological limits. Oh yeah. Oh, your head will explode. You'll have migraines all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I'm going to round this off just to ask you. So, and I ask all my guests because these things we talk about tend to be a little tricky. So, how do you track RPA? How do you track the future of work? How do you stay up to date? How do you find such exciting guests to put on your podcast? Uh, how do you do it? Um, that is a great question. I, uh, I, my attention deficit disorder serves me well 
in so much as thanks to the Twitters and the LinkedIn's and the, the countless newsletters that you can just skim the headlines to as they all populate your inbox now, um, you just try to absorb as much as you can, as quickly as you can. But it's that's far from perfect, and I, I I know everybody. That's the problem. There's just too much. There's too much out there now. So everybody has a particular view of reality. Uh, I, I I'm always championing the idea of of uh, dashboards and data and trying to to design it in ways that are that that it's easier to uh, almost absorb in an ambient fashion. So that you yeah. can, you don't have to spend a lot of time double clicking on things, but you can sort of glance at it. It's sort of like the classic like stock market chart of it's up is good, down is bad, and I can glean that in in picoseconds. Um, so there's that, and then guests for show. And I'm I'm still at this point I'm I'm still just reaching out to my own Rolodex. I, I guess it, it's making me realize how lucky I've been through just the course of my own natural career to to bump into so many interesting people. And, uh, yeah. and it's funny you say that I, I, I have, well, I mean, I have much, I have, you, you've run a podcast for a year. I've run it for a month, but I mean, so far there has been absolutely zero shortage. I, I just reached out once yeah. and it's an avalanche of interest because I think everybody wants to be on TV. It's the, you know, the Warhol, uh, right. thing, you know, everybody wants 15 seconds of fame and if they can get 45 minutes. Absolutely. Yeah, um, no, we all right. want to be listened to. I, and I think that's it. As long as, I mean, honestly, you get, at least maybe I get bombarded by all of these pay to play things constantly where they, they want to promote you. And it's just, it's just exhausting and frustrating. Whereas the chance to just chat with someone about stuff yeah. that we both find interesting, I'll do that all day long. And, and also by extension, I'll, I'll listen to that sort of thing all day long. And so I think yeah. that's why I think, podcasts are, are such an effective mechanism for brand building and, and growth. Well, on that note, Ian, it's been uh, very enriching. I, I find your uh, podcast interesting. I find you very thoughtful and I always enjoy talking to you, Ian. It's, it was a blast. Thanks so much for having me on. You are welcome. You have just listened to episode 30 of the Futurized podcast with host Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of work. Our guest was Ian Barkin, chief strategy and marketing officer of Sykes and host of the One Take podcast. In this conversation, we talked about the future of work, robotic process automation or RPA, automated outsourcing, experience-focused call centers, COVID-19, smart tech, the creative use of talent, scaling and selling a venture, building your personal brand, his one take podcast, and about the future of marketing. My takeaway is that the future of work is happening in surprising ways with twists and turns, that there are impressive digital elements that enhance automation, but also real human factors that counteract and temper those developments. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.